the biggest thing that I've learned with my channel is test things and actually give yourself a time period. So like having these clear things that you're going to do on your channel and then test them, look at your data and make educated choices moving forward. I think that's one of the biggest things on how you're gonna grow a channel. You can watch hundreds of YouTube education videos that tell you to do this and tell you to do that, but unless you have some sort of system in place where you're testing these and seeing the results, you're not gonna be able to see if something actually works or not. This is the Golden Hour Podcast, brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest is my good friend, Jevin Dovey. Now, Jevin is actually returning to the Golden Hour Podcast again. He was on a little over a year ago, but in this podcast, Jevin and I go over all the kind of crazy things that have happened over the last year with YouTube in terms of analytics, how to grow a channel, and how to potentially niche out and do other things on other channels, He's done this himself and he's had a lot of growth over the last year. He hit over 500,000 subscribers a couple months ago and he is just crushing it on the YouTube platform. So if you're a content creator or even a producer who has your own filmmaking or uh, production studio like Jevin, you're gonna really love this episode. But I'd like to remind you guys to please subscribe to the Golden Hour Podcast in your podcast player of choice. It really means a lot to us. We wanna continue to grow this show. And if you enjoyed this show, please share it with a friend potentially that might enjoy it as well. Also, if you haven't realized already, I've actually moved to a different channel called Indie Mogul, a YouTube channel. So make sure to go follow my journey over on Indie Mogul. Just search that on YouTube, I-N-D-Y-M-O-G-U-L. All right, without any further ado, let's listen to my conversation with Jevin Dovey. So here again to the Golden Hour Podcast is my good friend, Jevin Dovey. Welcome again, Jevin, to the Golden Hour Podcast. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me on. It's been a while since I've been on the podcast. I looked back uh, just now and it was July of 2019 when we had you on last. So it's been a little over a year now. It's a lot has changed. Yeah, it's crazy um, what happens in a year. In fact, both of us have an extra child in our life now. Uh, <laughs> yours <true. laughs> being the first, mine being the second. But uh, my son was born in October. When was your daughter born? March. March. So yeah, we're both, you know, youngish dads here. Um, how's dad life been treating you over the last couple months? It's a massive shift. I mean, it's it's been great, but it's just, you know, it's a completely different way to approach everything in life. I mean, everything's kind of changed with when you have a little one running around. So Jalen's six months now, and uh, she's starting to crawl, starting to, you know, just disappear on the floor and we have to run and chase her. <laughs> <laughs> so we wow. put up all the gates today and all the, um, you know, baby, baby, uh, what is that? Like the, the boundaries around the different areas. So she can't go very yeah. far. <laughs> Did you put the little things in the outlets yet? No, we haven't done that. But the, the people who own the house before us did most of that. So we actually came into a house that was pretty baby proofed already. Um, which was kind of nice. Yeah. And I will say this podcast is a little different than most for me because you and I are good friends. We talk regularly, I'd say at least five times a week on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so. so I want to just start off with that specifically. I called you right when the pandemic happened, um, probably around eh, maybe a little after like May-ish. And I was just feeling a little depressed like as a creator, feeling isolated, alone, you know, being stuck indoors, being a YouTuber, it was a benefit, obviously, because 
just make videos in my bedroom. But um, I was just feeling really isolated. And I asked you, I was like, dude, do you want to just like call each other uh, every day and just like hold each other accountable on work stuff and family stuff? And you were down. And I've just been really thankful of the last couple couple of months to develop a, a great relationship with you. And I've talked about it on the show. And I think it's something that a lot of other creators should consider if they don't have, you know, a fellow creator to to reach out to and talk to. How how has it been for you? You know, obviously I'm an idiot, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's super important to have an accountability partner. And it's you know either one person, two people, three people max. Like you really don't want to have a huge group that you're trying to like always chat with. That's why like things like Facebook groups and like Discords they're great and all, but like it kind of you get lost in the all the messages and you don't you can't really keep each other accountable whereas when you have like one or two other people that you call on a regular basis and you just kind of touch base it's someone that you can trust like i know if i send you a video you're going to give me honest feedback you're going to be like yo that sucks i don't know why you made that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like having those people that uh around you that can give you honest feedback and that you can just have be open with and have conversations more so than you know just the creator space but just life in general um, it, it helps. And I think it's an important thing for, you know, this whole pandemic. It's obviously been good to like, be able to bounce ideas off another creator and like, you know, just talk about what's going on. Because both of us with little ones with families, like, it's been a stressful time. And even though it does seem like, you know, the pandemic is, you know, being a creator in the pandemic is fine, because we sit inside and we shoot videos from our office, it actually... I didn't realize how much it took a toll on me until recently. And like, there's just, there, there's something about like being able to just like go and like meet up with other creators and shoot, even if you don't do it that often, it's like, we're so limited that we can't do that anymore. Um, it's just been, it's been weird transition with everything being stuck at home. It totally. I, I think, uh, if anybody's listening, they don't have somebody like, like we have, um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's been really encouraging and, um, and it's been great for me too. So, I appreciate that, Jevin. <laughs> appreciate you, Dave. <laughs> so last time we talked, um, you know, a little over a year ago now, um, you were riding around uh, a different subscriber mark. Now you've got 550,000 subscribers. Way to go. Congratulations. You hit 500,000 this year, right? Yeah. Was that was back a, in, uh, when was that? I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. A month or two happened, ago? but. Yeah, I mean, that's I, crazy, dude. It's, Half a million. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, that's one of those milestones that I've kind of been shooting for, and I finally hit it, and I was just like, wow. I, I like, when you, you know, when you first start YouTube and you're looking at, like, oh, man, I can't wait till I get, you know, 100 subscribers and 1,000 subscribers. You know, when I started YouTube, I, Casey Neistat had 500,000, and I was like, I, you know, maybe someday I'll get there. Maybe I'll be able to, you know get to that level because Casey is one of the people that got me excited about YouTube as I'm sure a lot of you out there you know Casey's vlogs inspired a lot of people and when he started vlogging and I think that's around the time I started like right at the beginning um, but it was like something you know it was a big creator that I that you know was a source of inspiration and he had around 500,000 and hitting that mark for me was a huge milestone it's like oh wow okay I got to that point where you know, when I first started, that's what I was shooting for. And so now it's, um, you know, it's a different ball game, I guess. Yeah, it really is. And Casey is sort of back. He's been, it seems like he's been posting every day, at least the last couple of, uh, I guess a little over a week now. Yeah. He's got the new vlog or something. Um, uh, 
It's it's interesting because they're a little bit shorter, but they still have that that Casey style, and you know he's such a good storyteller. When he's such a good storyteller, when it's not like a big overarching story, it's like a little thing, and he's able to craft a story around something so minute, but it ends up becoming so engaging. Like I think the last one I just watched, he was talking about like the ants that were attacking his the house, and he yeah. compared it to a Roman <laughs> emperor. And like a Roman army or, and it was just like, it's such a cool way to think about such a small thing because we had ants take over our house the last couple of weeks. And I know you had a problem with ants too. And I, that, that whole story of the, the, you know, the Roman empire, that didn't even cross my mind. And so like being yeah. <laughs> able to take, you know, something so small, just like he's, you know, putting poison out for the ants and turning it into a story that is like engaging and has like, you know, a, a, a conclusion where you feel like something has been achieved and like there's it's interesting i mean he's such a good storyteller for that style of video yeah and before he started doing this uh i think he started kind of doing vlogs again about a month ago from the recording of this in mid-september and uh before that it was kind of like yeah i guess daily vlogs are kind of like it, it might have been a fad during the nice stat era and now like now that he's been doing it again i'm like no it, casey can do it for the rest of his life if he wants and it'll be totally fine like it he's not he's a trendsetter he's not writing any type of trends whether or not daily vlogging is a trend anymore i mean you look at the, the paul brothers they're not doing daily vlogs anymore uh david dobrik hasn't posted a video since the outbreak um a lot of the big creators are seeming to move away from the daily vlogs and yet casey is still thriving cracking over a million views on every vlog it's insane. Uh, because he's just so freaking good at it. Yeah. So. I mean, he's he's got a pretty loyal fan base. I mean, we all watch Casey, and when you see his videos pop up, I don't think I watch every single one, but, you know, they pop up. I watch them, you know, here and there, and it's just like he's got such a cool style, and it's something that, you know, it's he's, he's going to be one of the top creators for a long time. And it's like he can go away for a year and come back, and he's, you know, people will still love him. Yeah, that's one of the things he mentioned in his last video or something he's like he kind of took a retirement for a year rather than taking one in his later years he's like why not just take a whole year off now enjoy my family enjoy the fruits of my labor for a while and then you know figure it out from there so yeah i think it's important yeah. to take breaks i mean you know it's even if it, you don't need to take a year off but there's been periods where i'll take like a month off or i'll take a few weeks off and I think it's super important to, as a creator, to step away from everything. You don't have to post. You don't have to stay on the schedule all the time. Like, there's plenty of times you can take a break and your channel's not going to fall apart. I mean, what's your thoughts on that, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I don't know. When you're start when you're a new creator, it's hard to to say that because obviously, if you're playing the game, you got to kind of put stuff out and um there's ways to combat that i mean there were times where I, I would take a whole week off but nobody would actually know because i would plan in advance and have a couple of videos like scheduled and ready to go yep. you know while uh, while i'm on vacation so that's, that's a great tactic you know like when i i've done periods where i'll do one a week and then in that time i'll end up shooting three at a time so that i can take a couple weeks off and nobody knows the difference um Right now, my schedule is kind of all over the place. I don't really have a consistent day that I'm uploading. 
um, just because I'm putting out more content. When I'm when I do like one a week, I make sure that it's very consistent, like every Sunday, because that's my highest viewership. You know, at 7 a.m. Even though time doesn't matter that much, it's a little bit of uh, it, it will help give you a little bit of a boost if you put it at the time when people are watching. Um, but then when you start putting out more videos, if you put out two, three videos a week, uh, you know, you don't, I don't think the schedule is as important. You just don't want to layer them on top of each other. So you don't want to have like one video and then 12 hours later, post another video. You want to give each video at least 48 hours to breathe. And that's where I found, like, I see a lot of growth when that happens. So I'm going to link, um, a link to our previous conversation, which was the first interview we had in the show notes of this podcast. If you want to learn more about Jevin and his story, how he's kind of gotten here, you had some experience in reality television, uh, filmmaking here in Hollywood, and obviously your your journey into YouTube. I'm going to leave most of that for the previous uh, episode. If you want to listen to that, I highly encourage you to do so. But over the last year, You've really learned a lot about YouTube. You've educated a ton of people about YouTube, and we can talk about that. You've had some viral videos in that space. And now you've even started a new channel called Jevin Dovey Stories. Um, tell me about just your process on the platform and what you've kind of seen happen in the last year since we talked last. Yeah, I mean, YouTube's an interesting place because there's just so many different styles of content. And I think one of the big things, like I got into YouTube education because I've started to see patterns with my own content and started to see it. You know, I started doing research into other people's content and really diving into, um, you know, like what performs well, how the algorithm works um, or algorithms because there's multiple algorithms and it's just an interesting thing for me to like really dig into so I, I got a, it, like I started changing my channel from just a straight like filmmaking style channel to more of a creator education channel um, I you know I originally started you know doing vlogging like I did travel vlogging so um, this channel's come a long way from where it originally started but you know, I was in the filmmaking photography space. I really cater more towards filmmaking, and then from there, I realized that there's this huge opportunity for just anybody to get onto YouTube and be able to, you know, crush it and be able to make a living, be able to, you know, build a following, whether it's you know a smaller following or a massive following. But you know, your success, your there's so many different ways that you can be successful on YouTube and there's so many audiences. So what I've been trying to do is just help other creators figure out what's going to work for them and, you know, help them find what will make their channel find the right audience. Because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about, you know, putting your videos into a little bucket, but it's finding an audience for your videos. Um, you know, a lot of, People say, oh, you need to niche down. You need to have like a specific thing that you are going to be um, doing on YouTube. It's more you just need to find an audience that resonates with your content. Well, with that being said, uh, you have a video called My Failed YouTube Strategy. Um, what was that that failed YouTube <laughs> strategy? And uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, you know, I had this idea because, you know, I do filmmaking I do YouTube training, educate creator training. So what I wanted to do um, was not just do like talking head videos where I'm just like sitting in my office talking about a piece of camera gear or talking about a strategy. You know, I, I, I have this documentary background, this reality TV documentary, like I've done a lot of projects. Um, 
And it's something that I've always wanted to continue to do. And the, the issue is like documentary is tough. Um, there is no, there's not a ton of money in documentary filmmaking. Like there are obviously documentaries that take off and make, you know, they earn a lot of money, but they take a long time to make. And, you know, some of the best documentaries, they're like 10 years to, to get a, a film made. I think there was this one, it was called The Big Little Farm I watched recently. And I th- it was like over the course of eight or nine years that they filmed this thing. And it's an amazing doc, but you got to think about how much time went into making that one, you know, hour and a half, two hour piece of content. Um, so like documentary is interesting. So I, I've always wanted to keep continue my, you know, f- direction into the documentary world. So I thought what I would do on YouTube was create these short documentaries, like five, 10 minutes. And then out of that, I would create like a review around a piece of gear that I did or a tutorial around a technique that I used on that film or, um, you know, something that ties more in with what my audience wants on my channel. The idea was doing these kind of groups. So you have a documentary, fun adventure film, whatever I was going to do. And then you have these pieces that are more catered towards my audience that teach and review and things like that. And that strategy seems like it would make sense for a YouTube audience, but it really just didn't work. Um, And so what I found, and this has just been from, you know, learning a lot about how YouTube works. Basically, those those films that I was making, they're not going to resonate with my audience. They'll resonate with a portion of it, but... The, the thing you have to think about is who is discovering those videos and who is that video for. So if I did a video um, in December, I went to Thailand and I did a documentary about uh, an elephant sanctuary there. Um, it was an awesome project, but the film itself is basically about elephant tourism in Thailand. So if somebody is interested in that topic and stumbles upon this video, so YouTube suggests it out, it finds the right audience for this video... Well, that person might subscribe to my channel after watching it. They might be like, oh, this is a really cool adventure, like Doc, you know, I really enjoy the story. I, I like what, you know, he does here. And then the next video I put out is a review around a gimbal or it's a tutorial on how to fly a drone. Well, that person most likely is not going to be interested in those topics. So now my channel starts getting split into these different categories on YouTube. So you, so like... I have these different audiences coming in for different styles of videos and that fragments my audience. And then all of a sudden, like my videos don't do as well and YouTube doesn't know where to position my videos. So it doesn't know which audience to send my videos out to anymore because I have these different styles of viewers coming in and watching my videos. I think by naming a YouTube channel a channel instead of a YouTube show, it makes people think that your channel is like a network like CNN or like, uh, you know, Discovery Channel has multiple shows on that channel and they're all different and people watch them at different times of the day and people now watch them online. But regardless, I think you almost need to think of your channel as its own individual show and it might make you feel like you're stuck in a box or whatever, but based on your findings and based on what we both know from just YouTube educators it's important to niche down on what that channel is all about on, on one kind of overall topic. That doesn't mean you have to like live in a box and you can't get creative within that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you've been able to see, even though you literally just started this new channel, Jevin Dovey stories, you've been telling me that you've been surprised with the, you've only posted two videos on it (laughs) so far and you've been surprised to see how it's already finding 
the people that are interested in this type of content. It's really great. Yeah, and it's a completely different audience. Like, I definitely have crossover from my main channel because there's plenty of people that, like, saw my original content, my travel vlogs and this and that. And I've gotten comments where people are excited that I'm doing that style of content again, just in a different place. So there's definitely some crossover, but I'm also noticing that there's a, you know, YouTube starting to find new people, like new audiences for that other channel. I mean, it's not huge yet, but it is growing. And my click through rates like 15% right now, which is insane. Um, because my main channel gets nowhere near that. Yeah. You wouldn't have had that click through rate on those types of videos on your channel. Oh, they would which, have bombed. <laughs> well, that's the thing. People kind of look at your subscriber number and would think, oh man, he's got over 500,000 subs. Of course, every video he puts out is going to get a ton of views. And that's not the case. No. It's the subscriber. Tell me, let's talk about that. Do subscribers matter in 2020 as much as they did 10 years ago? No, not really. I think subscribers help in getting the, that initial momentum, but it doesn't necessarily dictate whether a video is going to do good or bad. Uh, subscriber count, you know, and it also depends on how engaged you're following in. Um, so there's going to be a, only a percentage of your following that actually watches your videos. So, um, you know, someone like, you know, let's go back to Casey Neistat. He's getting like one to two million views per video. Well, he has 12 million sub subscribers. So it's only a fraction of his audience that's actually watching every time. And it's not just subscribers. I bet you if you look at his analytics... There's a big chunk of people that aren't subscribed that the YouTube algorithm knows will watch Casey's videos, so it's going to feed it to him anyways. Exactly. Um, so, so like on my channel, I think you know my non-subscribed viewership is huge compared to my subscribed viewership. And part of that is my strategy for my main channel has been a search-based strategy, which is a little bit different than someone like Casey who... who it's more about suggested. It's more about getting YouTube algorithm to work for you. So with that being said, you know, if somebody's starting out, starting fresh, and they've got five or six different ideas that are completely like just different niches, what do you suggest they do? Should they just kind of, when you're first starting fresh, should they just start out kind of experimenting with everything? Are you are you splitting it off because you have had experience now, uh, you know, with this, you've been able to build an audience do you recommend people when they're starting out to have multiple channels or I would so that's tough because multiple channels is a lot of work like I'm even you know struggling a, a little bit with like the idea of multiple channels because when, whenever you start splitting your audience or not your audience but you start splitting your time between multiple things you really can't focus in on one and this is why I didn't start my second channel till I was over 500,000 subscribers um because now I have, I know what works on my channel. I know um, what I will continue to do for the next year or two years. Like I know the style of content I'm going to continue to go after. Um, so now I have this flexibility where I can go make these secondary, these ideas that I've been wanting to do for so long. I have a, a whole bunch of hard drives full of footage of projects that I never actually did anything with because I just knew they wouldn't work on my main channel anymore. Um, so I, it'll, it's going to be interesting to start playing around with more story-driven content and, you know, try, try to move away from search. Um, you know, my main channel, I do so much with search. It's products, it's tutorials, it's finding good keywords that, you know, you're going to rank well in. And that, that's a great strategy for YouTube, but it's a completely different strategy than, you know, going after 
videos that, that get suggested out. So getting a high watch time and a high click-through rate gets the YouTube algorithm to start pushing that out to more people. So you have a broader reach when you go after these kind of suggested style videos. Um, so it'll be interesting. It's, it's going to be fun to have both styles of channel to play with. But going back to your question, um, when someone's starting out on YouTube, you know, I think it's good to just try a bunch of different stuff at the beginning and like just know if you're going to do a variety channel, you're probably not going to grow or you're going to have a fragmented audience to start. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think when people are first starting on YouTube, it's good to just play around. It's good to figure out what you're actually interested in and what kind of content that you, you know, finding the right kind of content that you will want to make five years from now. And that's important. I think there's too many people that get on YouTube and I see this in my comments all the time. They'll be like, I only, I have two videos and I'm not getting any subscribers. You know, I'm really, I have, I know what niche I'm in and this and that. And like, it's not going to happen overnight. And you're, you know, with a few videos on your channel, it's, you're not going to grow. It takes well into, you know, 50, a hundred, 150 videos. I think we, we talked about this last time, but I think I had like 200 videos on my channel before I started having growth because I played around a lot at the beginning. I didn't really know what my goal was. Um, I wasn't doing it for the money. I wasn't doing it to, you know, grow a massive following. I was doing it for a creative outlet originally. And then I figured out what does make my channel grow. And then I was able to turn that over, get my channel growing, and then I turn it into a business eventually. Well, speaking of business, uh, you know, people would maybe think that YouTube is all you do as we're discussing all this, but that's actually not true. It's really kind of almost half of your your actual personal business. You also run a production company and have been extremely surprising, not surprising, but uh, very uh, busy with it, um, doing fitness, health, and uh, exercise tutorial videos and stuff. Can you talk about just what's been going on ever since the pandemic with your production company? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting time. So my wife and I have had our company... Um, I want to say six or seven years now, but we run a fitness production company. So basically all we do is fitness videos. You know, like if you were to think fitness videos, something like P90X, like that's the style of content that we produce. So we really niche down into like one style of production company. And we're able to find a lot of clients that way and a lot of success. And that's, you know, something that for us, you know, it's, we do consistently. And when the pandemic hit, we were just in the right position to have a company that's catered towards creating at-home fitness products. So we had our clients exploded. I mean, we obviously took some time off because everyone had to shut down. But as things have been opening up, we've been able to start doing some productions again. Um, you know, obviously less crew on set and, you know, lots of precautions. Everyone's wearing masks, you know, everyone's staying away from each other. Audio guys are fully suited up. Like it's, it's an interesting time to shoot, but, um, like you were saying, it's about half my time. My YouTube channel is probably 50% of the time. Um, there's definitely like weeks on end where I can't even touch my YouTube channel because, um, I'm just working so much. And, you know, a lot like before the pandemic hit, I think there was periods where I do 10 day shoots. And so, um, I would really have to batch a lot of videos for my channel all at once so that I could spread them out over a few weeks. Cause you know, like we were saying earlier with breaks also with, you know, work outside of YouTube, it's kind of the same thing. You have to plan ahead. Um, 
with the pandemic, things slowed down. Obviously, uh, it's I'm not doing those big shoots anymore, but um, we've still been able to to continue shooting. And um, the last few weeks have been pretty busy for me. But uh, last week, I got a chance to you know we finally slowed down, so I got a chance to go up to a farm in Northern California and shoot a documentary, which I'm finishing editing right now. Um, by the time you guys are listening to this, it's probably going to be out on my second channel. But um, well, this is uh, this is going live tomorrow. So. Oh, well, <laughs> it might be up. I'm almost done with it. I just have to get okay. a few few things approved um, the, and make sure maybe that. The f- yeah, some of the Golden Hour fanboys and girls out there that listen right away might not, but maybe later this week. <laughs> we'll add a link to it in the show notes when it's yeah, live. I think it's going to be interesting because, you know, with these documentary pieces, part of the thing I want to do is be able to turn these around quick. So I shot four days on a farm in Northern California, and the whole film is about basically figuring out exactly where um, my burger comes from. So Mm. I went to a farm and watched the entire process from beginning to end. I actually watched a cow giving birth on the field, went through the whole farm process, ended up in the butchery and watched the entire process in the butchery, Um, which it was, it was an intense experience, uh, but it was really eye opening in where our food comes from, especially when you're getting food from one of these farms. And I think it's going to be, you know, I showed, um, I showed some people last night the film, like in a in a rough cut, and people were people were really excited about like how it came together. You know, um, it's just it's it's interesting to go after something different, like a different style of content, and really be able to just play around with the different concepts that you know we I've been teaching on my channel for so long, and do it in a way where I can have you know something on YouTube that makes sense, whereas. Um, a lot of times, like this documentary work I've done, I've been doing it for, you know, companies or working with other uh, producers and that stuff doesn't actually get shown on my channels ever. Well, I'm excited to see it. You've been talking to me about it for a while now. And uh, was it, re- is it related to like literally a burger that you ate that then turned into a relationship with the farmer of the place yeah, that has so, the burgers? Well, it's literally. So in Santa Monica, so. I guess our listeners probably don't know if you guys follow my channel, you've seen it, but I moved out of LA. Um, I moved South and then Dave moved back to LA. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of swapped places. Um, Yeah. But back in LA, there was a restaurant that my wife and I would go to and we just really, it was like, it was good meat. And then, you know, when we were there at the restaurant, everything was coming from a farm in Northern California. And we're like, this is interesting. So like we started, digging more into like what this farm is about and you know it's all organic it's they use this um, concept of regenerative farming and so um, I had this idea to kind of follow the storyline and so we built a relationship because we just like their product so much and then one of our friends actually put us in touch with the people that run Bel Campo and um, I pitched them this idea I said hey I want to come to your farm and do this documentary and they were super excited uh, I don't, they don't really know what they're going to be getting out of this whole thing because we kind of just talked on the phone a little bit about what I wanted to do. And I pitched them this idea of following the process and they're like, great, come on up and we'll make it happen. And so that was kind of how it all happened. Wow. That's amazing. And one fun little nerdy tidbit is you shot the whole thing on the brand new Sony a7S three and you oh, and I, the a7S three. <laughs> 
<laughs> you and I have uh, almost, I guess we're kind of like new Sony converts. Um, it seems like almost everybody already switched over a while ago, but you and I were still holding on to Micro Four Thirds uh, with the Olympus and Panasonic cameras. Um, I also was shooting on the EOS R for a time and then all my stuff got stolen. So, you know, we won't get into that, but, um, with the R5 and the R6 kind of debacle from Canon, uh, it doesn't really seem like anybody else is going to make, I mean, I mean, Panasonic has the S5, which you and I both have and have used, but, uh, in the camera gear space right now, the Sony a7S III sing, seems to be kind of the king. Uh, yeah. wh- what were your thoughts on it when you I, used it? So it's interesting because um, I, I, this is something for all the the filmmaking YouTubers out there. If you guys are trying to get gear early, you know, I pitched Sony this dock idea, and that's why they got me the camera. Um, originally, I wasn't going to be able to get one early, but I pitched them what I was doing, and they're like, "Oh, we we want to be a part of this." Um, so just something to keep in mind, like you know, have when you're working on projects, um, it's a you know, there's cool opportunity when you come up with creative ideas. So as you grow in the industry, like companies want to work on work with you in different ways. They don't just want someone running around and do a review all the time. Um, but let's talk about the camera because the camera's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've been a Panasonic shooter for a long time, and all my production company, my production company, I use the GH5 and the GH5S for everything, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the finally this is the camera that I've been waiting for, and this is like it's got everything I want in it. It works super well. The color looks great. I shot the entire thing in standard with some tweaks to that profile, but overall, I you know I didn't shoot log or anything. And the there's only a few times where like the highlights were blowing out because of the way I shot. It was like run and gun, but for the most part, like I was able to make the camera like work for me in a standard profile. And just like running around shooting at this farm without, uh, you know, just just kind of go go go. Camera works great. I mean, I have no complaints. <laughs> well, that's I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we're such good friends because we share such a similar viewpoint on cameras and stuff. And you and I both were shooting on the Olympus cameras for a, a while, um, even though literally nobody else shoots on those cameras. Um, it's mostly it's because the, it is a good camera. The EM1 uh, series was great, especially when they did the firmware update on the EM1 Mark II and then the EM1X, which you and I both had, which was way overpriced for what we were using it for. But um, it gave us, I think, three things that we both wanted. Good color, amazing IBIS, and a flip screen, and good autofocus. Uh, and... So four things, um, <laughs> and now now the Sony, other than Ibis, kind of falls down it, with Ibis. But there's something with the Sony that that you can't really get with anything else. And you did a whole video on it a week ago called uh, "Can the A7S III Replace a Gimbal?" Um, there's some really cool technology going on with the Sony. Can you talk about that with? stabilization even though the ibis in the camera isn't the best out there so it's interesting because i did a lot of tests when i was shooting with it playing around with ibis versus this gyroscopic stabilization that they've added so the only camera i guess the cameras before this was the fx9 had this and actually the zv1 has it but these cameras uh record gyroscopic stabilization so it records how the camera moves in space and this allows basically a 
there's an accelerometer in the camera and it's recording that data from how you're kind of holding and shaking the camera. It's, it's capturing that information. Yeah, it's wild. And you can use that and then bring it through Sony's Catalyst Browse and it stabilizes the shot based on um, based on the, the movement. And it's kind of like real steady for GoPro. Um, it uses the gyroscopic data. But it's just another tool that this camera allows you to have. And uh, I think, you know, it's really cool because I was testing out the IBIS versus the gyro versus a gimbal. And the IBIS, yeah, it's okay. Like, I think it's great for when you're just hand-holding a shot and you're doing, like, small movements. But if you're, like, moving the camera around a lot, it's not the best. And it does have a little wobble to it, especially on wide lenses. But you turn that off, you turn on, use the gyro stabilization instead, and the shot looks, like, buttery smooth. It's kind of insane how good it is. And I found that, like, you know, just vlogging with it. So I tried a lot where I was vlogging with the gyro stabilization and it looks amazing. It looks like it's on a gimbal. Um, and then, you know, I did a bunch of side-by-side tests. Um, I did a video all about this that show a gimbal versus this. Um, and I, you know, it's not a replacement of a gimbal. I don't think they're a gimbal is a tool that you use in certain situations, but there are times where I don't want to pull out my gimbal and I know I can rely on the gyro. And if I move in the right way, I can get a gimbal like shot. And I think that's, what's so cool about it. Like, when I was on this farm, there were some situations where I just whipped my camera out and got a shot, and uh, I just relied on the gyro, came back here, stabilized it in post, and I was able to get some really cool-looking shots. I remember when Warp Stabilizer first came to Adobe with After Effects um, before they implemented into into Premiere, uh, and before Final Cut had anything. I think it had what was called Smooth Cam back in the day with uh, Final Cut Pro 7, and uh, Warp Stabilizer was just so much better than what Final Cut had built in. I started using it for drone stuff because back then the uh, Phantom only had two axis stabilization with the GoPros. Oh, yeah. So forgot about you that. would actually, <laughs> yeah, it was just like hard mounted onto the drone. And then, yeah, the uh, I guess the the Y and Z axis were there, but not the X, I guess. I don't remember, but yeah. Uh, by using warp stabilizer, it would fix it. It would basically look perfect with warp stabilizer. But if you were to handhold the camera, I tried this because I was like, oh, warp stabilizer is just magic. You don't need a gimbal anymore. Or at the time I was using a HD 4000 uh, glide cam. <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, sweet, I don't need this anymore. I'm just going to handhold everything and warp stabilize it. And I learned real quick that that is not something you can do with just standard digital stabilization, even with how good warp stabilizer was and how it's obviously gotten over the last several years, you still can't ever really get to that, um, gimbal like movement, uh, for a couple of reasons. First off motion blur. And that still is the case with this gyroscopic, uh, stabilization in the Sony. But the second is it's just dealing, it's just having to kind of make up how to stabilize it because it doesn't have any of that data. So it can end up looking really warpy and weird. And the great thing about this gyroscopic stuff is, again, the accelerometer in the camera has all the information of how you were shaking it. And it's able to mathematically warp your image perfectly to how it was being shook, which is nuts. But where it kind of falls apart is motion blur. And no matter what you do, if you're shooting at the proper motion blur setting which would be 180 degree shutter 
you're going to have a little bit of a blur in your image when you move left to right. And so kind of the hack for that is if you're going to stabilize it, almost intentionally shoot at a faster shutter speed, what was that shutter speed that you found to be kind of the sweet spot to kind of get rid of that motion blur? Did you just go up a couple notches or did you just crank it all the way up to like a thousand and not use ND filters or anything? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember exactly where I said it, it was dependent on the lighting conditions and depending on what my aperture was, but I was always trying to go 250, 500 or, you know, up. Um, you just need to, you, you can't have any motion blur. So depending on your scene, you're going to have to crank up your shutter speed and also depending on how you're moving the camera. Like I was pushing it in some weird ways where I was really trying to, you know, shake the camera around just for testing purposes. Um, but if you're using this in like a normal setting and you're just like, okay, I want this shot stabilized. I'm not going to pull out my gimbal right now. Like you're going to be able to hold the camera and keep it stable to a degree. So you're really not going to have to shoot your shutter speed up to like one, one thousandth most likely. Um, and, but you know, I haven't really played around with adding motion blur back in post, but that's something that you could do. Um, there's a lot of plugins now that add motion blur. So, like, there are some fixes to try and make it look like it should be shot with the proper motion blur. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's one big downside. The other big downside is uh, you have to crop in on your footage. Just like, you know, it's... it's um, so, there's been times where I've done it and I've cropped in, like, 60% to get the footage stable. So, it's something to keep in mind, like, you're losing resolution. And so, with the A7S III... You know, you're, it's a 4K image, so if you're a 4K output, you're going to start losing resolution. So it depends on how much you're willing to lose when you're shooting. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a really clean image. It's, you know, because it's a native 4K sensor, there's no image issues and artifacts and stuff in, in the 4K. So you can crop in and you really won't be able to notice. But that is a downside, um, and you're going to have to kind of be intentional about your lenses, almost like almost shoot will definitely shoot wider than you're normally would because you're going to go in with the intention of cropping in and post yeah if you're a vlogger and you want to use this feature i would suggest you know the 16 to 35 is great but even if you need a little bit more you could go to i think i have like a 12 to 35 or something nuts maybe it's so a 12 to 24 that, i mean we're we're new sony yeah. converts so we don't know the lens lineup we yet. are <laughs> <laughs> and um that's one of the things that i think is making me want to go over to the Sony boat is their lens lineup and their lens ecosystem is just so rich with not only third-party companies like Tamron making those brilliant um, 24 to 70 zooms and, and stuff at a great price point and a great size. Uh, you've also got stuff from Sony f all the way from the G masters that are incredible optics, like some of the best optics I've seen really. Um, that are fairly large lenses, especially their G Master 24 to 70 is huge. Um, but they've also got great options like the 20 mil that's like super small and lightweight now. They've got the 50, the 35 that's super small and lightweight. And those are some of the reasons why you and I stuck with the Micro Four Thirds system was the lenses were so compact and they balanced well on the body. And Sony, even being a full frame camera, actually has some options of lenses that aren't massive behemoths like the rf lenses yeah i think that's one reason why i'm really excited to switch over to sony um you know i i i'm waiting for my a7s3 to show up i had to return the one that i shot with last week but um should be here this week but i went through and i bought um 
all the primes that I would use. So I got a whole lineup of primes and I got the 1.8s because they're so much smaller. And then the 16 to 35 is an awesome lens for like run and gun style shooting. I might need to pick up the 24 to 70 or the 70 to 200, but, um, they're so, they, they get pricey though. They get pricey. Into those lenses. I know. Yeah. I just dropped a lot of money getting all this glass, but, um, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to sell some other camera gear. Yeah. And then the the new uh, what's it called the A7C they just released as well, which it, you know it. I love what um, I don't know if you saw Gerald Undone's video, but he said something great at the beginning of it. He was like, "There's two ways you can go with technology. You can take the same form factor and advance the internals and make it better, or you can take older technology and shrink it down." And that's what they've done with the A7C. It's it's an A it's an A7 III. And because technology has gotten better and more advanced, they, they're able to shrink that tech down into a body now that I think it completely negates Sony's very own even APS-C line of cameras at this point. It's like, why are you buying an A6600 for basically the same price and it's a crop sensor versus full frame? This camera's the same size as it. Like, Yeah, it, I, don't, I, I don't see the point of you know crop sensors in the Sony lineup anymore with that camera coming out because I can see that they're probably going to make more cameras of that size for full frame. It makes sense. Like they are really dominating the full frame world um, with all these different styles of camera. And I'm excited about the A7C just because, you know, it has everything the A7 III has in it, but it also has things like the gyroscopic stabilization and the flip screen. Um, so for me, I like that's a perfect B camera. So my A7S is going to be you know, the main camera I use for all my stuff, but the A7C would be a great, you know, office camera, something to shoot my talking head bits. Um, If I need a second camera when I'm out shooting, it's just another good camera to have. But personally, like, I like shooting 4K60 a lot, so I'll shoot a ton in 4K60 when I'm out shooting. So that's why, you know, I've been waiting for a replacement for my GH5. The issue with the Panasonic S5 is it crops in on 4K60. So like you're always having to deal with this battle of jumping back and forth between APS-C and full frame, and it's just not functional. Um, you know, it's a good camera, but the autofocus sucks, and the cropping in causes issues. And you know, like I was really excited about it, and then I, you know, it just it didn't. They didn't really advance the things they needed to advance with this camera, and I think Panasonic's going to lose a lot of people to Sony because of that. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, it's, uh, that's the beauty of uh, capitalism and, uh, business is, uh, having good competition like Sony is going to get some of these guys to, you know, hopefully innovate in ways that we want. However, Sony kind of owns the market because they sell all the same sensors to everybody. So I'm wondering if like in 10 years, Sony will be the only manufacturer left making yeah. cameras. I mean, it's, you know, you want competition, but at the same time, like Sony's listening to their users, like, you know, camera camp was a year ago and you're seeing all the effects of that camera camp in all these new cameras. Like, you know, at camera camp, they had conversations with all of us. We were talking with the engineers at Sony, giving them our wish list of what we wanted for cameras. And we're now starting to see that with, you know, the ZV-1, the A7S III, the A7C, like these effects are starting to trickle in and, you know, people, a lot of creators have been asking for these different features on Sony and now it's here. So it's tough because other camera companies aren't listening as much to the users, at least in this YouTube creator space. Um, and Sony is. And so that's probably why they're getting a foothold and really taking over in this space. 
I'm just happy that they made a tweak to the color science because like you, I don't like to shoot log everything. I know there's a lot of people that just heard somewhere that like you get them. I mean, it's true. You get more dynamic range with log, but it, I think some people think they should shoot log all the time for their video footage. And it's like, if you're just bringing log back to what standard would look like, it's actually going to probably still, even with 10 bit, have some noise in the image versus just baking it in. Um, and that's what I love about the new Sony is that standard profile. It's a, they call it a creative style, not a picture profile, but that standard creative style. Dial the start, uh, I dialed the sharpness down, and I think I took the contrast down one notch and left everything else the same. And they finally nailed the the color science. It actually looks pleasing. It doesn't have that kind of greenish, uh, magenta y like awful skin tone that it used to have for so long and that was my biggest gripe was like i can't shoot on sony because it looks awful yeah and uh that's not the case anymore yeah it, so. old, old sony color takes a lot to bring it back to where you want it you know like panasonic has such good color that's why one of the reasons why I, i've been shooting panasonic for so long but um this new profile like whatever they've done to it it looks great and then also it has great highlight roll off so when you are shooting something that's overexposed there's not like a hard line like when i remember when i used to shoot sony way back um it, it for some reason the highlight roll off really bugged me and with this yeah. camera i'm not noticing it at all well just go watch some of the big um jake and logan paul um vlogs like they definitely shoot on sony's and uh, they probably don't even touch the profiles. They just like turn it on and go. Like that's kind of how they shoot. And like, you can just see the highlights clipping all over the place. And for some reason, Sony's old color science was terrible, but they've, they've finally fixed it. So anyways, we're probably getting too in the weeds here for a lot of our <laughs> listeners who don't care about gear, but I think a lot of our listeners also realize that I'm the gear guy. So I like to talk about gear, but, um, back to kind of, just overall YouTube stuff. What are some of the, if we can just touch on it, what are some of the things that, uh, some of the mistakes you've made over the last year that you have now, I mean, we've kind of talked a little bit about it with the new channel and stuff like that, but what are some other things that we can kind of let our, our listeners go home with, uh, who are actively creating maybe kind of your intermediate to advanced creators who listen to this show? What, what's some things that you've learned? over the, these last couple of years that you yeah. want to impart? Um, I mean, I think a big thing is listen to your audience. You know, like pay attention to the people that are actually watching your videos. Um, don't just always listen to YouTube educators because there's something that's happening and I've seen it happen more and more over the last year. It's basically like the YouTube education space becomes an echo chamber. So if one person comes up with an idea you start seeing everyone in the YouTube education space kind of take that idea and run with it, um, whether it's good or bad. And, you know, I think with YouTube, there's almost so much education out there that people that like if you're trying to figure out how to grow your channel, it's it, it just becomes too much. Um, the biggest thing that I've learned with my channel is uh, test things and actually like give yourself a time period. So like come up with an idea and you know whatever it is that you're going to do to try and grow your channel or do something new on your channel and give yourself a period whether it's 30 days 60 days 90 days to try that out and then look at your data to see did that help or did that hurt and then from there continue that journey and be like okay 
this thing helped my channel grow in this way. So now I'm going to do this more and I'm gonna try this new concept. So for example, recently, um, about two months ago, I started playing around with my mid-roll ads. I had, I used to not use mid-roll ads ever and I just wanted to play around and see, okay, if I add mid-roll ads, does it gonna, is it going to hurt my viewership or is it going to not give any effect to my viewership? And then is it going to increase my revenue or is it going to stay the same with revenue? And I saw a massive boost in revenue and no issue with viewership. So now this is something where I'm like, okay, I can use mid-rolls and it's not gonna hurt my videos, um, but I know it's gonna increase my revenue. So that was a, a something that I've tested over a period of like 60 days and saw how it affected the thing, like these different aspects in my analytics. And I think if you approach your YouTube channel like that and you're like, okay, I'm going to try putting um, a title intro card that's 10 seconds, you know, in all of my videos, does my audience retention go down or does it go up? I'm going to do, you know, a hook where I say exactly what I'm going to show you in this video. Does that keep people retained or does that make them go away? So like, having these clear things that you're going to do on your channel and then test them, look at your data and make educated choices moving forward. I think that's one of the biggest things on how you're going to grow a channel. I don't think, you know, there's, you can watch hundreds of YouTube education videos that tell you to do this and tell you to do that. But unless you have some sort of system in place where you're testing these and seeing the results, you're not going to be able to see if something actually works or not. And what's, uh, what's kind of your favorite, feature of YouTube studio, uh, in terms of analytics, what's kind of your, the thing you're looking at a lot right now that has been interesting to you? Well, there's a new thing that popped up recently under the audience tab and it's, um, videos that your viewers are watching. And there, there's like 15 videos there from other channels that are what your audience is, is watching in the last seven days. And I think that's, it's so interesting because you're now given 15 videos that your audience is interested in. So I, I don't know how to necessarily use that yet and what how to what to pull from it, but I've been looking at it and I'm starting to think through like sh should you build a strategy where you bar like use titles similar to that or thumbnails similar to that or topics. Um, I think it's a good place to find ideas and I'm gonna start testing and playing around with it and trying similar title structures to what I'm seeing there for my own videos and seeing if that increases viewers or, you know, that has no effect. Um, just because those are videos that my audience is actively watching. So um, I think a good tool to use, though, something that I constantly use is um, you have to dig into your advanced tab of your analytics and you can use this grouping feature. And I think it's important to group your videos um, based on kind of like whether it's a series or whether it's a similar topic. So one of the series I have on my channel is how to vlog. Um, and another series I have is cinematic color grading. And so what you can do is in your advanced tab under your analytics, you can create groups and add videos to these groups. And so when you're looking at your analytics, you're just looking at the analytics for the videos that you've added into this group. So I create a group for my how to vlog series and I create a group for my cinematic color grading series. And then I can look at them against each other over the course of 90 days, over the course of, you know, 365 days. And I can see, okay, this series is bringing in more watch time, or this series is bringing in more viewership, or, you know, series A brings in more people off search, but series B 
is more satisfying my actual subscriber base. So when you start getting, you know, when you start figuring out like what kind of topics you have on your channel and the series and the groups, you can start figuring out the style of content that you should approach. Um, you know, like for me, uh, anything with smartphone gimbals does super well. And I see every time I do one of the smartphone gimbal videos, I get a massive spike in new traffic from outside sources. So like search and then, but those don't necessarily, you know, those aren't necessarily the ones that are getting suggested all the time. Whereas something like my, uh, mistakes new YouTubers make, I have a few videos under that category. Those videos get suggested out insane. It's like 97% is suggested traffic. So figuring out different, uh, styles of content and then figuring out where those strengths are, that's how you can create a diverse, per- diverse portfolio of um, the kind of content you're creating. And you can really go after suggest- suggested style videos versus search versus you know videos that bring in new people and videos that bring in more income or videos that bring in, you know, make your satisfy your existing subscribers. Man, it's crazy how <laughs> in-depth the algorithm is and how amazing it is. The fact that we now as creators can see what our viewers are watching. Yeah. It, it does seem a little uh, like I love that uh, analytic, but it's a little invasive, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's, it's, well, okay. So let's talk about the social dilemma. Um, yeah. You watched that, that recently. I just watched it. And Did you finish it? Uh, yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's it, a little eerie. Everybody, by the way, we're, the social dilemma, go watch it on Netflix if you haven't already. Uh, really well-made doc about kind of the algorithm and, and for all social media. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's crazy because, you know, we talked this YouTube algorithm and essentially what we're talking about is getting people to stay on the platform and watch longer. Um, but, like, you know, it's, it's having such a, a effect on society as a whole. So it's, we're in this weird position where we're in this system where we're trying to get people to stay on the platform and watch longer, but at the same time, like, you know, you don't want people to spend all their life on social media. I mean, it's for me, I deleted Twitter, Instagram, everything off my phone. Like I have nothing on my phone anymore because, um, it just takes too much of my time and I'd rather hang out with my daughter. And, um, I just don't want to deal with social media, which is funny because, you know, we create on YouTube and, Well, do you think that, like, do you think it's, I mean, this is hard to say, but like, it's really, we're making a product, you know, a video review or whatever, and on its own, it's a faceless thing that the video itself isn't manipulating people or like, as an adult, we have the decision to watch something or not. Yeah. So it's their own responsibility. However, you know, YouTube wants us to quote manipulate viewers to watch more yeah so therefore if we say things a certain way or or do thumbnails that are clickable or whatever it's just i'm personally like after watching that documentary i was kind of thinking am i part of the problem here like are we part of the problem (laughs) are we feeding Um, the system like i and i really feel it because like i've done so much youtube education on how to get people to watch longer and stay on the platform like that's one of the biggest things if you want to grow a channel the you try to get your watch time up your click-through rate and your Mm -hmm. average view duration well what are those three things tell the algorithm well this this person's watching longer and staying on the platform longer so this is a good video like it's it's such a weird place to be when 
you know, we know the effects of these social media platforms. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just, I don't know what to think of it. And like, personally, (laughs) I've like tried to step away from social media. I jump on Twitter and Instagram once in a while and I'll post, but like I delete everything off my phone unless, you know, like I want to like once in a while I'll pull it on for an hour and use it. But I try to keep it out of sight, out of mind. Um, and really try to focus on, you know, creating and then step away from it and do things like outdoors, like hike or mountain bike or, you know, go try and do other stuff that doesn't involve a phone or a computer. I mean, people have been trying to get people to watch TV uh, longer for years. People have been trying to get people to listen to the radio more uh, when or the radio was brand podcasts. new. Or listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we're an entertainment culture and we want to be entertained and, you know, come home from work and watch a couple of shows. And YouTube has replaced television for a lot of people, myself included. I, I tend to watch more YouTube videos than television these days. Um, and that's fine. You know, if, if within the context of being an adult who is responsible with their time. However, where it becomes a problem, I think and you and I are making content for 30 to, you know, my audience is mostly 30 to 40 year old or 20 to 30 year old males. Let's just be honest. 90% of my audience is male. Um, I think I'm in the same demographics. Yeah. I mean, no offense to the amazing women who watch our content. I wish I had more, Um, but still like when you're making content for children and as I've watched my own two-year-old son use the YouTube Kids app and go down a rabbit hole of videos that turn up to like serve him Halloween-themed videos where he's watching skeletons and monsters, and then he's at nighttime like, "I'm afraid of monsters, Daddy." I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "I saw it on the YouTube app." I'm like, oh, "Delete that like right away!" Like, how did this happen? And that's what scares me most is the kids. And that's kind of what the documentary really is about is like, we're indoctrinating our children to be addicted to this stuff. High schoolers are interacting now a hundred percent on the phone. It's scary. The, <laughs> the suicide rate in teenage girls is through the roof. The depression anxiety rate for especially teenage girls is crazy. And like, if you're the, if you're the evil parent that won't let your kid have a phone when everybody in the entire class has a phone, then that makes, you know, the kid maybe get really mad at the parents and like there's a whole issue there. So it's like it's going to be tough for you and I as our kids get older to navigate this. And hopefully, hopefully, dear God, you know, when both our kids are in high school, you know, things might be different and there might be some regulation on all this. But yeah. I'm, it's an interesting topic to talk about. I'm curious to see where things go in like 15 years. You know, it's like yeah. we have no idea because it's still so new. And it's just kind of the wild west and it's, it's crazy. Like I just, you know, growing up without a cell phone, like I can't imagine what, what it would be like growing up with a cell phone. Like I just remember like, you know, I think my parents had a flip phone and they would send it out with me if I like went out for the day, um, just in case I needed to get in touch with them. That was like the most that I would have, but that would go in a backpack and I wouldn't even think about it. Yeah, I, I'm a little. I just turned thirty, so I'm a couple years. I'm thirty-two, younger, but yeah, two years younger. So yeah, we're pretty much the same. We're millennial generation, and it'll be funny too. I was telling Laura after watching that documentary, I told my wife that we, when we're like in our eighties and nineties, we're gonna be interacting with other adults, and they're gonna literally come up to us wide-eyed, like, "What was it like 
growing up without technology, you know, because <laughs> the millennial generation is literally the last generation to like as a child grow up without an iPad, you know, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because there is something good about, you know, being bored and not having things to do. I think that's where creativity really starts taking off. Like some of my best ideas come when I'm, you know, not in touching a computer, not touching a phone, not touching anything. Like when I'm out hiking or I'm like doing something by myself or I'm just sitting alone, that's where my brain starts moving and, and, you know, things start happening. And I think there's a lot to that. And, um, kids need to be bored. They need to learn to sit, be able to sit with themselves and not have to grab a phone. It's just, it's one of those things that like we, like we were bored a lot when we were kids. Like that's just part of life. And I think, now you can fill that void every second of the day with a new update or a new something popping on the phone, like the phone, like there's so much that happens on the phone. And that's part of why I got rid of all my apps is because I found myself just with my phone in my hand looking at it. I'm like, why am I looking at this? Like, you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. I, I personally, I, I just like, I've really, you know, understand that like for me, I need to focus on one thing at a time. And if I have to, Think multiple things going on, I don't get anything done and I get less creative and I kind of start losing what I was trying to do. So like, it's, it's pretty funny. Like lately I've been trying this strategy of just putting one thing on my to-do list. And then when I get that done, I'll go see if there's other things I had to do. But if, if I don't have a huge to-do list, you know, I'm not thinking about anything. So like today I'm color grading this documentary, that's it. And then once I'm done with that, then I'll, you know, I'll look at, I have like a maybe to-do list that I'll look at later and be like, okay, these are things that I needed to get done that didn't, that weren't urgent. So there's something funny. Yeah. When every time I do color at the end of my edit, uh, that's the closest we will ever be to being a photographer. And it's kind of <laughs> like, cause that's what people do after a shoot is they bring their images into Lightroom and it's so wonderful because you can listen to a podcast, you can listen to music, you can actually like fill your mind with other things as you're doing it i'm so jealous of photographers who are able to listen to music while they edit which is great (laughs) yeah i mean i just spent two days editing this doc and like it's basically just listening to the, the dialogue or the music that i'm using for the film and like it's yeah i mean i think photographers you know don't realize that about the film world but you know you we're like you have to be engaged with it. And color grading is the only time where you can really like turn off the music, turn off the audio and just listen <laughs> yeah. to what you want. <laughs> Absolutely. So to kind of close this thing up, is there anything that you would like to say to our audience of creators, photographers, filmmakers, um, just something that you'd like to leave them with at the end of this conversation? I don't know. I think, you know, with everything that's been going on with COVID and, you know, things happening in the U S like it's been a very interesting time. And I think one of the key things right now for all creators is take care of yourself and take care of your family. And like, really don't kick yourself. If you don't get a video done, don't kick yourself. If you didn't hit the deadline for like getting a, you know, the GoPro hero nine video out before everyone else did like, you know, focus on yourself and then make content when you have time. And, um, you know, you got to take care of each other in this community because, uh, you know, we don't want to have creator burnout happening. Like it, you know, it happened like a year ago where everyone was falling apart and like, we, we want to make sure that this community thrives and we support each other. So 
I think that's an important thing that creators kind of forget. Well, I'm going to hold you to that, man, because uh, you've told me on the phone before how <laughs> you need to take more breaks. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, and I think we can end on that, too. If you don't have a fellow creator buddy that you can call on the phone and just um, have accountability with um, from a relational level, but also a work level, I can't speak highly enough of how beneficial it's been for me to be able to call you, Jevin, and just like just talk about crap going on in my personal life, but also in work. And it's just, it's been great. So thank you for doing that yeah. with me, man. No, I mean, thank it. you. It's, I think it goes both ways. It's super helpful having an accountability partner. And, um, I think everyone should strive to find one or two people that they can really trust in that way. Well, thanks again, Jevin, for being on, uh, the golden hour podcast. And, uh, we'll have to have you on a year from now to see, what happens with your uh, stories channel and you know, who knows what YouTube will be a, a year from now. So yeah, we'll see where things go. Thanks for having me on. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with my good friend and pal, Jevin Dovey. Just like we said at the end there, please do yourself a favor and find somebody who does what you do and just become friends, become buddies, become pin pals, if you will. It's a huge win, in my opinion. Also, make sure to go check out Jevin's Stories YouTube channel. We've linked that in the show notes as well. And go check out his documentary. If it's not out already, it'll be out soon. This documentary for him has been a real passion project like you heard in our conversation. And I really want you guys to all just go watch it for him and check it out. Leave a comment and say you listen to him on the podcast and that you love the content if, if you're a fan of that type of stuff. We love talking to you guys and, you know, it does feel like just a wall where I'm just speaking into a void of nothingness as I'm recording into my microphone. But I know you're there. I know you're listening. Hit me up on social media. I love to respond and talk to you guys and have that relationship between each other. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. There are some incredible new Polar Pro filters and amazing things happening on the Polar Pro website soon. So make sure to go to polarpro.com to learn more about that. We're so excited to share this incredible new stuff from Peter McKinnon on our website. So make sure to check it out. Thanks again for listening every single week. We'll see you next Tuesday.